So John chapter 17, we're going to cover verses 1 through 5 this morning, uh, Lord willing. That is probably good news to those who were here last week when we covered quite a bit of information. I will never do that to you again. That uh, was a little much. I, I admit, I confess, it was a little much. So John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles, let's read those verses together. You don't have to stand for this, but let's read the verses together. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. So that is our text this morning. This is known as the what? For all you Bible scholars out there. This is the prayer of Jesus, right? The prayer of Jesus. And so I have to apologize again. I'm doing that a lot this morning, but I got a little ahead of myself saying that they were already in the Garden of Gethsemane. They have not gotten there yet. They're on their way. They're on their way. They've left the upper room, and so they haven't yet to cross over the Kidron Valley, which we'll see, um, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 18 is when they actually cross over the Kidron Valley and into the Garden of Gethsemane. But before they get there, Jesus has been ministering to his disciples. He's been teaching them, speaking to them. And so he stops along the way, and he prays. He prays. And this is the prayer of Jesus. Now, I know that we have the Lord's Prayer, right? But that is probably better, that would be better described as the disciples' prayer. Because that was Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. This is the actual prayer that John records for us. This is the actual prayer of Jesus, a prayer that he prays for the disciples that he's with and for all future disciples, of which that includes us, right? So always remember, as you're studying your Bible, that there were no chapters and verses in the original text. This would have been a scroll. It would have been one continuous story. So this would have been one continuous teaching as they're walking along. And as should always be our habit, we have to look at this in context, in context with what we have been studying. So the last thing, the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he stops here and prays is what? Anybody know? Don't look at the screen, that's cheating. Chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So Jesus prays after he tells his disciples that the only peace that we will ever have, that we will ever know, is found in him. And in this prayer of Jesus, we're going to find how we have peace in him. He tells us, he tells them also that he has overcome the world. 
And in this prayer, we're going to discover ways, tools to help us overcome this world that seems to always be pulling us back in, doesn't it? So we're going to go through this prayer of Jesus slowly, and we're going to glean, as the Lord wills, some advice and guidance on how to be conformed to Jesus. How to be conformed to Jesus. Even though the world around us keeps trying to pull us back in and conform us to it, we're going to learn through this prayer of Jesus how to be conformed to him and not to the world. How we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ so that in our present bodies, we are now supposed to be, prayerfully are, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which, by the way, the Bible tells us is our what? Our reasonable service, right? Not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. So over the next few weeks as we go through this prayer of Jesus, we're going to learn how to, and we're going to learn together and grow together as we discover how to overcome this world and have peace in Jesus in this world. And so the first thing we learn this morning as we look at how to overcome this world, a world, as I said, that's always trying to pull us back in, is that an overcomer is a person of prayer. Now I want you to notice that Jesus lifts his eyes toward heaven and he prays. His eyes are open as he prays. His head's leaned back and he's, you know, I picture him having his hands outstretched as he prays and he, and he gives us a picture of his intimate, this intimate relationship between Jesus and his father. He is face to face, if you will, with God the Father. Now we can make a big deal and as Christians, we probably would, about the position of Jesus as he prayed, right? We try to make a doctrine out of this. That yes, we should always pray with our eyes lifted to heaven and our hands outstretched, right? We'd make a, a doctrine out of this, and, and many try to, many have. But the fact is that he prayed in many different positions throughout his time on this earth. Later, we're going to find him in the Garden of Gethsemane where he falls down on his face and prays. And he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my, as I will, but as you will. Jesus stood and prayed. He knelt and prayed, and he fell on his face and prayed. So the position in which we pray makes little difference. It, because it's not about the position of our body in prayer. It is about the condition of our heart as we pray. Praying is an act of worship to God. God doesn't want our outward displays of worship if our hearts aren't in it. You know, the psalmist rightly summarized God's desire for our worship when he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse 17 what pleases God more than our outward displays of worship is the condition of our heart on the inside. Amen? A.W. Tozer wrote, The goal of every Christian should be to live in a state of unbroken worship. When that is the goal of our lives, kneeling, bowing, lying prostrate, and walking down the street are all postures of prayer and worship that are pleasing to God. So Jesus prays to his Father, 
And as he prays, he looks up to heaven. He's face to face with God the Father. Now, we've gotten the habit of praying with our eyes closed and our, our hands bowed, uh, clenched like this, right? And th this has some history behind it. It dates back to a time when, when little girls wore pigtails and there were little inkwells sitting behind them in their desk. And in school, when they taught them how to pray, they had it because, you know, little boys being what they are, they would dip the, the pigtails in the inkwells, right, or pull on their hair. And so they would teach them how to pray by keeping their eyes closed and their hands folded. Because if they weren't, their eyes weren't closed, they'd be looking out the window, they'd be making faces at each other, they'd be causing all kinds of trouble. So keep your hands folded, keep your hands to yourself, and your eyes closed. Don't be looking around making a nuisance of yourself, right? That's how they were taught to pray. And that has stuck with us all of these years. But listen, we've grown up, haven't we? We've grown up, and there's little danger, I think at least, there's little danger in us pulling the hair of the woman in front of us today in church. There might be some of us left, but... So we can look to heaven and pray face-to-face -face with God. There's no reason for us to, to pray. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Please don't misunderstand me. But we really don't have to pray like this anymore. We can look face-to-face -face with God and lift our hands to the heavens and our eyes to the heavens. But do you have ever found it difficult to lift your eyes to heaven and look at God face-to-face -face when we are in sin I know it's difficult for me it's difficult to look up to heaven because we think for some reason that God looks upon us in a shameful way and I think that's why we love praying so much with our hands folded and our eyes closed because we feel ashamed to face God face to face sometimes so we hide in a sense when we pray hoping that maybe God won't see us down here if we're all crunched up like this you know he can't see us. Wasn't that man's first response to sin? To hide in the garden? To hide from God? And I think we're still hiding from him in a way when we pray. Listen, that's exactly what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to feel ashamed. He wants us to hide from God when, we, when we're in sin. Now listen, we have to confess that sin. We have to repent of that sin. That's always the first steps in being forgiven of our sin. But there's absolutely no reason for us to hide from God. Because as we stand before God looking up at him, crying out to him, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of his son. So don't ever let the enemy think that you're not good enough to come into that throne room of grace, to stand before God, to lift your eyes to the heavens and pray to God, to cry out to God. Because that is a lie straight from the pit of hell that we are not good enough. We are, we're not good enough in our flesh, but because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, before the eyes of God, we are his sons and daughters. God doesn't want us to hide from him in our sin. He wants us to bring our sin to him so that he can forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so... We have to understand that when we come before God, he's not ashamed of us. He's not looking at us in disgust. He's looking to us. He's looking for us to come to him so that we can receive his mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's why it's so important when we kneel in prayer, stand in prayer, sit in prayer, walk in prayer, that we absolutely understand who it is that we're praying to. In the Old Testament, 
they would set up idols made of wood and they would pray to them. The prophet Isaiah said this, Then it shall be for a man to burn, for what he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Now he's talking a piece of block of wood here. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire, and this half he eats meat. He roasts the roast and he is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. So they would worship a piece of wood. How re- To us it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That you would... Take a piece of wood, cut it in half, and use half to cook your, your food on, and the other half you're going to carve it to an image and, and worship it. It had no ears. It had no eyes. It had no heart. It had no hands. It had no feelings. It had no emotion. It was a piece of wood. Yet that was their God. A God that, by the way, in, in times of trouble, a fire, a flood, they would have to pick their God up and rescue their God and carry him away, or else he would burn up or drift away in the flood. So they worshiped the God who could not respond to them. And in times of trouble, their God had to be rescued by them. When we pray, think of it who, who it is that we are praying to. When we worship our God in prayer, we're worshiping a God whom the Bible tells us hears us. He sees us. He protects us. He delivers us. He weeps with us. And he loves us. We worship the one true God, a living God, who God, a God who makes his promises and keeps his promises, a God who keeps covenants, a God whom we can trust, a God that rescues us and carries us through the storms of life. And most importantly, a God who cares about us physically and spiritually. He is a God who forgives and a God who cleanses us of all unrighteousness. This is who we pray to. This is our God. This is who we have a direct line to, a direct line of communication to. This is who we have unlimited access to. The author of Hebrews tells us, come boldly to the throne room of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So when we come into that throne room, we're not strangers there. Have you ever walked into a place, maybe a party, hopefully not a church, where you didn't know anyone there, but you felt awkward? That's an awkward feeling, isn't it? You feel like a stranger there. You feel alone there, even in the midst of people. That isn't the way it is when we walk into that throne room of grace. Our Father is overjoyed to see us. Blessed that his child has come to him for help for peace, for comfort, for wisdom. And the best way I can describe that joy is the feeling I get when I pick up my grandson Oliver from school. As soon as I open that door and he sees me, he bolts to me, jumps up in my arms and hugs me tight and says, I missed you, Pop. And that's what I believe our Father is like when we come into our throne, the throne room of grace and we come to him. As we walk into that throne room, our Father holds us and he, and, he, and he says, I missed you, son. I missed you, daughter. 
We can be ourselves there. We don't have to put a front up with our Father in heaven. He knows us. He knows why we're there. We don't have to hide from him. We don't have to keep our faults and our struggles hidden from him because he already is at work in our lives in many of those situations. The psalmist wrote, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. Listen, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he wants to give us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And is there ever really a time in our lives when we don't need his mercy and grace? Praying isn't something we do just because we're Christians. It's our way of worshiping our God. We bow to him. We bow to him on bended knee. We, we bow to him with a heart bowed before him, a heart humbled and contrite, a heart after God. And to come to him in prayer, falling down on our face before him, is to humbly admit that, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. We lift our eyes to him because we want him to see us. We want him to see how much we love him. We want him to see the tears and lo let him know that we're sorry that we've grieved him. But no matter what position we come to him, the main thing is that we do come to him in prayer. Moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. And here's the most important thing to understand and take away from this. That the more we bow the knee to him, the more our heart will bow to him. The second thing an overcomer does is glorify God. The second half of verse 17 says, verse 1 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Now the one thing that we need to take note here is the way Jesus communicates with his father. He calls him father. And he prays, glorify your son. Now the Greek word used here for father is patea. Patea. And it means a parent. It means a parent. So Jesus is saying, you're my father. You're my parent. I'm your son. This is a family relationship. And we have that same exact relationship with God the Father. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 6, verse 18. So knowing that this is a family situation, that he's our father, that we are his sons and daughters, that should change the way we pray, shouldn't it? We're coming to him as his son. We're coming to him as his daughter. We don't walk into that throne room of grace as strangers. We walk in there boldly as his family. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Now the word for glory in the Greek means to magnify or to praise. So Jesus prays that he is glorified. But that's not a selfish prayer because he's not praying that for himself. He's praying that he be glorified so that what? So that his father is glorified through him. Jesus thinks of God here, he, and he thinks of God all the time. He always puts God first in his life. 
Jesus would be glorified in his death and resurrection. Now, without Jesus' death and resurrection, God the Father could not be glorified because it would have meant that the plan of salvation would have failed. His resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven meant that his sacrifice was acceptable, that the work of salvation was finished, it was complete, and that is what brought glory to God the Father. So Jesus needed to be glorified first so that by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, it would bring glory to God the Father. And that really was the ultimate goal of Jesus here on this earth, to bring glory to the Father. Now Jesus knew his time had come. And what he meant by that was his time of crucifixion, his time of death had come. Many times throughout the Gospels we see Jesus saying, my time is not yet. But now he knows his time is here. His time has come. And he says something odd here when you put all this together. He's saying, what he's saying in reality is that God would be glorified by his death. Now when we think of the cross, we think about it from our perspective. He redeemed us. He set us free. He died for us, for our sins. And all of those things are true. But first and foremost, he died for God the Father. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, 33-36. So Paul here is speaking in chapter 11 of Romans of the plan of salvation. And how it encompassed Jew and Gentile and the church. And how no one, it was a marvelous thing to Paul. He describes it as there's a depth to this. There's riches to this. It's a rich, deep plan. Because it encompassed both Jew and Gentile in the church. And, and no one saw that coming. They thought salvation was for the Jew only. No one could have perceived ahead of time what God would do. And Paul writes, his ways are past finding out. His ways are so much higher than our ways. But I want you to look at the last few words of verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. So first, it is all of him. It wasn't our plan. Salvation had nothing to do with us. It wasn't our plan. It was God's plan. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were unaware that we even needed a plan of salvation. Before I came to Christ, I didn't think I was a sinner. Certainly not as bad as anybody else. And even if we did understand the wickedness of our hearts, even if we were capable of understanding the, the true depravity of our, of our hearts, what we were capable of, even if we understood that we needed to be saved, even if all that was true, how would we do it? How would we possibly satisfy God's judgment for our sins on our own? And knowing us, even if we were able to come up with some version of a plan of salvation, it would be just for us and our family. Everybody else would be left to fend for themselves, right? Or we'd be selling the plan. No, this was all God's plan. His plan before he ever created the world, before he ever created us, this plan of salvation was put in place. A plan for all mankind. 
that whoever believed in Jesus would be saved. Paul wrote, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Secondly, it is all through him. Since there's no possible way that we could save ourselves by works or by just being good people, good-hearted people, the only way we can obtain salvation was through God. It is by God's grace that we have been saved, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And the grace of God, even the grace of God, is a gift of God. It is all through God. It is through God that he sent his only begotten son to die for our sins. And then thirdly, it is all to him. All of this has been done for the glory of God. You and I were created to bring him glory. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The plan of salvation was completed by the finished work of Christ on the cross. And when you and I come to faith in Christ, when you and I become sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, that brings glory to God. One commentator wrote this, At the end, all things related to that gospel, all things related to salvation are from God, accomplished through God and ultimately intended to be to God. And then is the, he then is the source, the means, and the object of all redemptive work. Everything is for him. In the end, everything that Jesus did, Everything that you and I do is for the glory of God the Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says on several occasions that he has come to glorify the Father. He never sought his own glory. He sought to glorify God the Father. His life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven all brought glory to God the Father. And Peter affirms this when he writes, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that all that we do is that God is glorified through Jesus Christ. So how do we glorify God? Well, by our repentance, by our coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that brings glory to God as does our obedience to the will of God and our submission to that will. Our life lived for him, our life modeled after Jesus Christ, even our death in Christ brings glory to God. Because the psalmist wrote, Precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jesus' death on the cross was his completion of the work of redemption. Our death in Christ is the culmination of that redemptive work. When a saint dies and he or she goes to be with God the Father in heaven, that brings him glory. But what brings him even more glory is the way we live our life for him. Now God sometimes magnifies us. He sometimes lifts us up. Maybe it's at work or, or in the community. 
And he doesn't do that so that we can sit back and just enjoy the accolades and the praise. He does it so that as we are magnified, as we are lifted up, we give him the praise. And that he is glorified in our being lifted up. One of the best examples I could come up with in this is Tim Tebow. Everybody know who Tim Tebow is? If you're, if you're a football or baseball fan, you've come across that name before. He's the guy that actually gave us John 3.16. And I, for those of you who don't know, he always wore a lamp black under his eyes, and, and he had John 3.16 etched into it all the time. But Tim has been lifted up. He's been given a God-given ability to play football and baseball. And even though it's Tim that's being magnified and lifted up, he always made sure that God got the glory, that God got the praise for his abilities. God gets the glory for who Tim is and what Tim can do with God's given talents. That's why I always say that if you can, if you can play an instrument, if God has gifted you to play, if God has gifted you to sing, if God has gifted you to teach or, or to have the gift of encouragement or administration, whatever the gift that God has given you, you should be using that gift to bring glory and praise to God. Using that gift to edify the body, but also to bring glory and praise to our Father in heaven. Now Paul, at the end of this passage of Scripture, says to him, to God, be glory forever. Paul didn't really understand the depths and the riches of God's plan. He None of us really still understand it completely. And sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we stand back and we scratch our heads and we say, God, I don't know what you're doing here in this particular situation. I can't see your plan in this. Anybody ever said that? Anybody ever just stood back and said, God, what's going on? What's happening here? But it is at those moments that we need to do as Paul did. Just praise God and give him glory, accepting the fact that even though we don't understand what's going on, we trust in him because of who he is and what he has done. Trusting in him also brings him glory. Look at verse 2 of 17. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All power is in his hands. Jesus held the power of life and death between his hands as he stretched his arms out wide on the cross. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. It is only through him that we have eternal life. But notice something here that the world doesn't understand. It was for all. It was whoever, whosoever comes to him, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever, howsoever we come to him, no matter how we come to him, eternal life is for all. All we have to do is call upon the name of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, and we will be saved. That's all part of God's wonderful plan of salvation. That's the depth and the riches of it. That salvation is for all. For many of us, the decision to come to Christ came as a result of someone else telling us about God. And since that time, we've come to know God on our own, right? And the word Jesus uses for know, to know God, is the word gnosko. That Greek word means to know intimately. But there's more to it than that, as there usually is. 
in the tense that this word is used in, in the Greek language, there's always tenses. In the tense that this word is used in, it means to grow in knowledge of. Not just to know, but to grow in knowledge. So that causes us to stand back and ask ourselves a question, am I growing in the knowledge of God? And i got to tell you, it really blesses my heart to come in here early on a Sunday morning and see all of you in here learning inductive Bible study, learning how to really dig deep into the Word of God so that you, you just mine, you're mining those golden nuggets that are in there. That is really a, a blessing to see that. The only way that we truly grow in Him is to spend time with Him. Spend time with Him in prayer. Spend time with Him in His Word. That's how we come to know the one true God. And I think it's interesting that Jesus uses that, that specific phrase here, the true God, the one true God. Because it's in direct opposition to the gods of this world, right? There are gods still in this world. We think that in ancient terms, that people worshiped gods in just in ancient times. But listen, the gods of this world are still active and alive and, and working in the lives of so many people today. The god of mammon, for instance, the god of money, the love of money, people still worship money to this day, don't they? There was a god called Asterisk, was a god of sensuality and lust. Today we call that pornography, the god of pornography. How many worship at the altar of pornography daily? There was a god called Molech in the ancient times, and that god required child sacrifice. We call that abortion today. Millions of babies have been sacrificed on the altar of abortion to this day. There was a god, a god called Baal, which means Lord. How many worship self today? How many are so self-absorbed that they're the ones sitting on the throne of their lives and there's no room for Jesus whatsoever? And there's more. There's more gods, but time doesn't permit us to list all of them. But they are the gods of this world. And Jesus makes a very clear distinction here that we worship the living true God, the only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of life. The God that doesn't want our sacrifice, but our hearts. The God of the living, not of the dead. A God that saves and sets us free, not a God that entraps and ensnares and enslaves. And the Bible is clear in telling us that we serve a much different God than the world serves. And if you are in the practice of serving any of these gods that we mentioned here this morning, get away from that as far as you can. For Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters. For us as believers, we have only one, one true God, the only God. So far, we've looked at two ways that we overcome this world and avoid being pulled back into it. First, we overcome whatever the world throws, us, throws at us by being in prayer, by taking everything to him in prayer. Second, we learned that we overcome this world by glorifying God by the way that we live our lives separated out from this world. And thirdly, we're going to learn that the way we overcome this world is in obedience. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Jesus says here that he finished the work. Jesus is on a one-way path to the cross. The arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, all of that has already been set in motion. 
There's no stopping that now. Jesus is on a collision course with the cross. And Jesus has already, even before any of this was set in motion, had already surrendered his life to the will of the Father in heaven, even before the foundation of the world. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what obedience is all about. It's all about surrender, submission. We surrender our will to the will of the Father. I love what one commentator wrote. They said, one of the greatest battles, if not the greatest, is quieting our own desires in favor of God's will. Real obedience to God means discerning his will in both the small and large moments and learning to lean into it, regardless of our current feelings about it, to follow God's will and ultimately to desire his will and nothing more is the foundation for true discipleship. Obedience is perhaps one of our greatest struggles, isn't it? Because the pull of the world against us is so great in that area. The world wants to draw us away from the things of the Father and towards the things of the world. The world wants our obedience to it, thereby making us disobedient to God. When Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, we can see that tribulation, can't we? Especially when we stand up to do the right thing in the world that's always looking to do the wrong thing. And the area that we're more keenly aware of this than anywhere else is when it happens with our own families. And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Anytime we're obedient to the word of God and speak out against sin and we are living our life for him, that draws a, a target on us, doesn't it? That can and it has put us at odds even with our own families, with our friends, with our coworkers. For some of our family members, the world has already pulled them back in. And we know that the truth can set them free, that only the truth can set them free. But in many cases, they don't want to hear the truth. So what do we do? We finish the work that the Lord has called us to do. Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father in heaven, so obedience for us is to also do the will of our Father in heaven. The finished work. The finished work he's called all of us to do. Paul said at the end of his life, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. Paul had been obedient all of his life. He had finished all of what God had called him to do. But what has God called us to do? Not only what has he called us to do, for many of us, have we even put a dent in that work in our lives? And I want to list just three things, just three things on this to-do list, if you will. And there's many more, but maybe we can only handle these three. First is to be a witness. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be a witness to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is God's will for each of us here this morning that we be a witness to him, a witness to him not only in word but also in deed. He has called us to be a witness to show the world Jesus through us. Second, the work that he's called us to do is to live free. 
For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. We have been called to live our lives free of the bondage of sin. We've been called to use that freedom that we've been given to serve and love one another. And then thirdly, we've been called to live holy. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. We've been called to live a life that brings glory to God a life wholly submitted to him, a life set apart from this world and lived for him. So to desire to finish this race well and do the will of God in our lives, just doing that is going to leave us much too busy and much too preoccupied with the things of God to ever be pulled back into the things of this world. To do what God has called us to do will give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And it will give us the tools that we need to help us overcome this world. So there's much more to the prayer of Jesus. Obviously, we've only scratched the surface here this morning. And we're going to overcome. We're going to overcome. Yeah, we're going to overcome. We're going to uncover more of these useful tools that will help us in overcoming the world and our flesh. Helping us become more like Jesus Christ. So we're going to continue on, Lord willing, and then continue to unpack this prayer of Jesus. So until next time, if you want to know more about this, well, I guess you'll have to come back. Please stand. <laughs>